Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, in this special edition of the podcast, we are excited to welcome the executive chef for Team USA Basketball, as well as head chef for the NBA's bubble in Orlando, Sean Loving. Chef Loving is here today to discuss his various roles in feeding Team USA, best eating practices pre and post game for coaches and players, healthy carbs, proteins, sugars, and much, much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with one of the world's best chefs, Sean Loving. I want to start with your relationship that you formed back in the day with Rip Hamilton, Richard Hamilton, and how that relationship started and then how that led into kind of what you are now doing with Team USA Basketball. Sure. Um, So my relationship with Rip happened when he transitioned from um, the Washington Wizards um, in the trade that brought him to Detroit. So when he came to Detroit, um, he was looking for um, a personal chef. He was looking for uh, an an opportunity to continue to fuel his body because at that time he was kind of known for being an energizer bunny, running around an awful lot, um, you know, exhausting a lot of his energy. And he wanted to make sure that he would fuel himself properly with what would be considered a strong pregame meal and obviously a recovery a meal on the back end, which would be a post-game meal, um, and, you know, meals prior to practice and all of those good things. So, you know, it was just many of those things that led him to uh, wanting a personal chef. I ended up meeting him. Uh, he had came by my restaurant at the time. I owned a restaurant, Loving Spoonful, and um, he had got a takeout order uh, just to keep it simple. And then uh, he must have liked the flavors, kept coming back a few more times. And then from that um, I met him in his basement. Uh, he, he, I'll never forget that. He, he asked me to come by his house. I went by his house and he was getting his hair braided. And he was sitting there and I saw this very, very large afro and uh, I couldn't see his eyes. And, uh, he, you know, he had his head leaned over and he, he said, uh, Chef, is that you? I said, yeah. And he said, uh, uh, you know, I want some of the same flavors you have at your restaurant in my house. <laughs> I said, where are you at? You know, he said, you know, I'm trying to find him, you know, and, and uh, I said, absolutely. No problem, man. Um, you know, happy to do it. Um, but I still needed to operate my restaurant, you know, at full capacity the right way. So I ended up doing it as a supplemental and would go to his home every day and cook for him, which obviously stretched me quite a bit. And um, and then got to the stage of uh, cooking for him consistently. So then after you start cooking for Rip Hamilton, then if I'm correct on this, eventually that started to lead to opportunities with more of the Detroit Pistons and then eventually with that organization, correct? Yeah, it did. It's, it's, 
it's really interesting that, you know, you hear about what I would consider locker room chatter, you know, that sidebar conversation, what's going on, but never would you think that the conversation's about salmon or chicken or vegetables. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't <laughs> think that that's the conversation, but what ended up happening is uh, the players start talking and um, uh, Rip and Chauncey were very close, you know, close friends and obviously being the guards and uh, you know, Chauncey was like, man, what is that? What is that in that to-go container? I mean, you keep coming with all this food. I mean, yo, what's, you know, what's going on? And yeah. so, you know, Rip was like, man, it's my chef, you know, uh, you know, you should check him out, you know, and then Rip called me. Hey, can I give Chauncey your number? No problem. So then I started cooking for Chauncey, my buddy, man. I, I just love cooking for him too. And, and then that started the process, you know, from Chauncey became uh, Tayshawn and then uh, Ben and then, and then Sheed. And then they, they're like, yo, we, we want food on the airplane, man. Like, like we need, we need you to take care of our plane. I'm like, you know, I got a restaurant here. You know what I mean? Like, this is, you know, like I'm, I'm one person I'm driving in the snow. Yo, uh, uh, we got to kind of look at this a little bit. And so, um, sure enough, I start cooking for the airplane, um, taking the stuff out on the, on the tarmac. And if you can imagine a truck pulling out on the tarmac, loading it up with food, driving underneath a big airplane and, putting food up there. What a gratifying feeling though, to go from one person to making sure that, you know, you could fuel an entire plane with obviously coaches, uh, trainers, staff, and uh, worked out real well. And then obviously we got to the championship, won that, and and then um, had a couple runs thereafter. So um, became friends for life, man, and, and uh, got a chance to hang out with them during their raising of the banner for them. So it come full circle, you know, just, just really yeah. is. And those are relationships that are great. As, as you started to take on more responsibilities with other players and the teams, what's, what was kind of the logistical aspect? Were you cooking the same meal for all the players or were you tailoring it to their individual needs? Were you working with team nutritionists at all or how did it work out for you? So there's always, you know, a, a team nutritionist. Um, once you get comfortable and the nutritionist understands um, that you understand the philosophy of cooking, you understand ingredients, calorie count carb needs, what's the differences and going on. And once you learn the philosophy, you know, it's obvious uh, the guards were, you know, Rip was a heavy push of carbs on the front end of the pregame. He had to have it that, that he, he wanted to feel bulky. Um, whereas the other guys were real light, you know, they wanted to stay real light base protein, um, not too much fruit, lots of veg. And then boy, that, that, that postgame meal though, it's opposite rips, not wanting it, you know, a, a very heavy carb, but, the other guys were like, man, you better give me as much pasta as you've got. So it was, it was that kind of conversation. Once I learned a lot about what the nutritionist expected, recovery and all those things, then it was comfortable. They let me go. You know, they understood that I understood um, what to do and how to achieve it. And um, at a certain point, to be honest, you know, it's not broke. So, you know, don't, don't really start changing it yeah. and, and re-manipulating it a certain way because I was hitting the numbers according to what they expected. And then lastly, there was not really many altering changes in terms of dietary needs for each player. You know, Antonio McDice or a couple guys here and there had to stay away from a couple things. It was way before the, the height of nut allergies or those kinds of do's and don'ts had not really hit the ultimum level that they are today. Um, so 
couple things here and there, you know, please don't sprinkle any green stuff on my stuff. As a kid, I don't like green things, <laughs> you know, stuff like that's all good, but, but it wasn't, yeah. you know, not, not overbearing at all. As a chef for all of these different guys, how much will you advise them or do you advise them at all on what they're eating, when they should eat it? I, re- I really think that it's very, very difficult to, to take a, a professional athlete and tell them or force them down a road of you, you have to eat this. This is what you should eat. Because I think the reality is, is that you've got to, you've got to get, get deep into the culture of where's that player from? Um, what did they grow up loving? Um, you know, what city did they come up in? How did their grandmom cook? How did their aunt cook? You, you got to learn a little bit about them as a group, because it's just the same as a, as a song or an artist that they start liking and they're hot on. Everybody gets hot on the same thing after a while. This one's into, you know, this one's into hummus now. This one's into Mediterranean food now. And so it just, it happens that way, I think, organically and naturally. I don't think it's a situation where you, you should ever force and tell what they should eat because that's immediate, that's an immediate turnoff in the food and beverage atmosphere, I think, because immediately there's this thought process of that's not going to taste good. I, I, I don't want to eat that. That's not going to taste good. I think it's all about strong fundamentals, good cooking techniques, things that have depth of flavor, not concentrating just on sodium, but just really knowing when to add what ingredient at what time. Uh, textures real critical for athletes. They love crunchy things. They love texture. They don't love, you know, they don't want soft salmon. You know, I mean, they, 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 don't, they don't want that, you know. So so yeah. if you try to go down this road of it is healthy, that's good. But you don't have to broadcast things in that manner to where it's a turn off, I think. You're one of 72 people currently who have their mm-hmm. certified master chefs. Yes. Can you talk about that experience and what it took to get that certification? Because there's such a small minority of you that are able to get it in the United States every year and what that process was like. So it's quite interesting for me. Um, I've got 23 days invested in the exam, 24, about 24 total. I've taken the exam three times total. I took the exam twice, seven days, didn't make it to the eighth day. Uh, Finally finished it, made it to the eighth day in 2017. Uh, The exam is really a test of, of, of not the actual evaluators that are evaluating you, but it's actually an evaluation of all of the things that you're not very sharp at, that you have to study and become sharper at. And so I think that that's what is really the hidden jewel of the exam, um, is that it forces you to look in the mirror and take a and, and take a real hard look and an understanding of the things in which you're not efficient at, whether it be uh, different types of uh, cuisines around the world, uh, healthy cooking, different types of grains, bulgur, frica, different types of lentils, you know, different types of spices. The exam is built around every type of competency, European standards, uh, food standards, uh, pastry, baking, uh, it, classical cooking. It's, it's designed in an eight day process hardest, most, most challenging cooking I've ever done in my life. Going through this process, I mean, you know, as any sports, you know, with basketball, if you have a weakness, you're going to work on it. So 
as you went through this process and you said you're identifying your weaknesses, then what is your process? To, I mean, what, what could you, if you give us an example sure. of what maybe you were weaker about at the time and what was your process then of, okay, I got to improve and how do you improve? So for me, um, like coming off of cooking for the athletes and things like that, I never had to worry about specific portions or the amount or following a recipe exactly because for the athlete, it's like if you have a bunch of asparagus or a whole heck of a lot of broccoli, you give it all to them. You don't say, well, only give them three, like you're in the middle of a little perfect little bitty restaurant. I mean, this is a big human. They, they, they want all of it, right? If they have some left over, they've got their earphones on. They're not going to say anything to you either way. You just give them a lot, right? And so for me, portion control was a critical to learn and understand how much product I needed to be successful for 10 portions as opposed to having portions of 20 and really dialing in that amount so that I could have 10 portions of concentrated, excellent flavor, as opposed to 20 portions of good flavor for this type of crowd, but not excellent flavor to the depths that a European evaluator would want from you. That's the first thing. The next thing I had to do is work on the depth of my fatigue. So what I would do is do opposite things. Right now, my day usually starts around uh, 4 a.m., getting ready to come to the college and work. Um, I changed up my rhythm. I would still start my day at four o'clock in the morning, uh, but then I changed my wake up time to three o'clock in the morning. But then I wouldn't practice for the exam until after I was done with a full day. So I would go home, return to the college at night, sometime around 10, 11, and work for four hours so that I would have fatigue, so that I would feel tired while I was cooking. So that when I got to day five, day seven, I wouldn't be tired. I would just be feeling normal. So it was like a training for myself to get myself more ready for the fatigue. This is interesting. When you are fatigued, what do you notice then with your cooking? Uh, you know, what starts to, to go? You start to forget. I've got something in the oven. I'm moving around. Uh, your organizational skills get looser. Uh, and you could be working in a small space, but then you start you start spreading out, you start getting loose, you start to you start to move things around. And it looks like um, when, when kids are making cookie dough, you know, it just gets too wild. You gotta, you gotta bring yeah. it kind of in a little bit. And so um, I trained myself that way um, and would do it every day, not every other day, no time off with it, just to get a rhythm. And, and that, that really helped me out a lot yeah. because I, I could just depend on my own mind. How has, going through that process and, and getting that, you know, master chef certificate helped in what you do with team USA basketball, what, what is carried over from it? So I think what's carried over for team USA, the most interesting thing is, is when I began with team USA basketball in, in, in 2004 with the Beijing, I was studying the exam then. So they were always wondering why, like once the meal period was going on, I'd be holding this book and studying and I'd be like checking to see if everybody's good. And then I'd be studying and then I'd be going back and somebody, you know, flag me now. Hey, chef, you got any more of that? That was banging. Sure. Get you some more. And I'd be studying through the process. So with USA basketball, like they were actually like a part of that journey through it. I'd be in Beijing. Maybe I'm going to learn some styles of how they tempura. I'm going to learn some styles of how they do pad thai. Like I, I used every platform I could to indulge myself with depths of understanding ingredients, cultural differences, and all of those things. So 
that's what I used USA Basketball for while I was there, you know, every single time I've traveled with them. As far as how it's helped, it's helped menu development, I would say, um, how um, I'm able to now, you know, treat the international menus balanced between Western cookery, which is what our players love, but also adding in some of those flavor profiles and ingredients that are very, very strong for that country or culture so that I can adjust and make a difference. I mean, you don't go to, you don't go to China and ask for corn. It's just not smart. (laughs) You know, don't, don't ask them for corn on the cob. That's not a smart thing to do. It will not taste very good. And so I learned, you know, as I went through my exam to get more efficient with ingredients, which helped, I think, with menu development. And that brings up a, a really interesting point. And, you know, Pat and I were talking about this as we were preparing is one of the questions that I had for you is when you go to Beijing, you know, you're going with a group of, say, 40 to 50 people with Team USA Basketball, and you have all the specifics of what they like to eat, what they want. How do you go about actually getting the food, say, to China that you're going to cook for them over the course of a, a month or so? Yeah, so... So really, the first and foremost, biggest importance is the proteins, identifying what proteins are available, where I can get them from. So if I'm going with, let's just say beef, let's say beef, some form of pork and that product, I want all of that coming, shipping in from Texas, right? It's a large spot where I can get things sent from point A to B. Mind you, the hotel's properties that we go to are first class. So they're prepared to do whatever it takes to get the most optimum product available. That's never really an issue. The biggest issue is um, asking the hotel to have you there. The reality is, is that no one wants you there. (laughs) You know, they, they don't really want a chef there that's from America Sure, the hospitality part is good when it comes to service and linen and and dining room excellence. But the behind the scenes in the kitchen, I'm like the villain of it. They don't want me there. They, 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 They frown against, why are you here? So I'm alone in the back, coming out in the front, everyone's smiling. Everyone's got their beat earphones. Everyone's happy. Everyone's wanting pancakes. It's great out there. But in the back, I'm in the rugged. You know, they want to put soy sauce on everything. They don't want hash browns today. You know, they don't want me to touch anything. So it's that way. So so it takes me about 10 days, 11 days or so for them to realize, ah, you kind you, you know you know what's going on <laughs> <laughs> yeah so Sean are you are, are you flying over to say Beijing mm-hmm. before the team to prepare the kitchen for when they arrive or are you going at the same time I go before them I may okay. arrive three four days and that's usually before they when they leave on their journey sometimes it's like right prior to the Vegas departure or uh, when they do their little tour prior to getting to the main spot, I'll arrive uh, in anticipation, get my first week of menus strong, ready to go, have the, the, the meeting with the staff of that property. The world championships are harder than the Olympics, though, because you move. 
you know, you got about five, six days at one hotel, then you move somewhere else. So last summer before pandemic, we were in, you know, we were in Beijing, we were in Dongguan, we were in Shenzhen, we were in Shanghai, you know, in Spain, it was like Bilbao and then Barcelona and then Madrid, and you know, you move. But when it's the base Olympics, it's men and women, and you're in one location, you know, so like Rio, one ship, 38 days. That's it. <laughs> no leaving. On game days, how many meals are you preparing for the team start to finish? I mean, how many meals are they trying to eat? Is there, are there snacks involved, too, that you'll prepare for games? The interesting thing about that, it's just an awesome question, is everything in the USAB is all based on schedule, like the timing. The timing so opposite on the west, Western front for us, right? So, so the reality is they could have an early game um, in the Olympics, and the reality of an early game is almost like breakfast for us here. So you could be watching a game at 9 o'clock in the morning here, but it's later in the day there. So it's almost like an example would be that if it's an early game, you're really giving a brunch. So that means you're intermixing breakfast foods with higher end proteins like salmon and like chicken and that too. But yet that's, that becomes like the first meal of the day, but it's really a pregame meal. But that means you're still doing things that are package friendly for some individuals who want things at halftime. Like they want to eat something, you know, that's where you hear, oh, wow, why does everybody eat so many peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? I mean, it's the reality that sometimes you got to have some, some things that are supplemental to keep them over the edge to get through the game. And then there's the post-game meal, right? So that post-game meal becomes not really a dinner. It's like coming back from a game, being hungry. That has nothing to do with the fact that they still might have dinner later, and then you've got the lounge, you know, the Nike lounge, and that's like 24 hours. You know, that's like, hey, tapas, food, hungry all the time. So it's like, don't go to sleep. You know, chef, you just, <laughs> there's more chicken needed. <laughs> you, know, it's like, it's like, you know, so it's like, you know, if I could say, you know, breakfast, lunch, pregame, postgame, I understand there's about a four- a four in there, but it's really more. We're talking a lot about, you know, players and what they're eating pregame, postgame. And we have a ton of coaches listening to this podcast. How about your, your view on, you know, pregame, postgame, or mostly, I guess, would say, you know, pregame meals for <laughs> coaches. Is that different than what the athletes are eating when you're with Team USA? Or, you know, what, are, I guess, are some of the, the best practices for coaches to eat pregame? I think what's so fascinating, but yet so respectful, so respectful to all of it is that I've just noticed such a transformation that all of the coaches are totally desiring to be on the same page as the athletes, wanting to eat healthy, desiring to eat their pregame at the same time as the, as the players, that camaraderie just becomes so the energy is so awesome in that regard. Everyone shows up at the same time. You know, it's definitely a goosebump situation when, the coaches come down at the same time as the players. They're all trickling in. Everybody's got the same shirt on. Everybody's got the same trousers on. I mean, seriously, if you ever want to talk about the level of feeling like you're a part of the United States at a moment, 
that's like the feeling of feelings. But as far as food is concerned, there is no specialty need for the for the coaches, respectfully to the, the the players. They always put the players first, make sure the players get what they need. But they they truly enjoy following suit with quality pregame meal, just the same as what the players would have. For the coaches, are they? Um, I guess from your point of view, you know, because I'm always personally trying to figure out what's the best thing that I should eat before a game where I'm going to need extended period of energy as a coach for the next three to four hours. Um, what are some things from your point of view that are some of the best dishes or meals for coaches to eat, to get that energy and maintain it? Well, I think, I think you hear some of these simple conversations that really hold true today, which is lean quality, fresh proteins that are not bastardized by improper technique is critical. Um, you know, when you talk about the difference between farm-raised, wild, all that really does matter. It does matter that, you know, these chickens have not been plumped with a hormone. It does matter that the lean protein doesn't have this sort of rubbery, steam, uncleaned skin from the chicken breast on it. I mean, these sound like they're so simple compared to anyone can do it, but you'd be surprised behind the scenes of a basic good quality grilled chicken breast that turns around and gets wrapped in plastic wrap and it tightens up, doesn't eat really good. It's lost a lot of nutrients, vegetables being wrapped in plastic wrap, um, using the wrong kinds of fats when cooking these vegetables. Um, You know, the simplistic answer is it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot but the building of fuel is through how that product's handled from the beginning until it comes to you. Okay. That is the real reality of it. And now we can start talking about specialty ingredients, coconut oil, palm tree oil, uh, sunflower seed oil. You know, there's some great products out there. Right. I use a sunflower, uh, a sun, a sunflower seed oil that's just spectacular. It's it's light. You can make dressings with it. You can cook chicken with it. You can cook salmon with it. It's just quality. And so that's what I would say to sustain that. And then the bigger conversation is refueling the body after you've uh, uh, ran around so much and or worked hard recovery the recovery yeah. aspect of it on the back end of the day. You bring up a really good point there. And so to kind of follow up, you know, coaches that are hopefully listening to this podcast, I mean, obviously we're not all at the luxury of being in the NBA, having personal chefs. So as a coach, or even as he talks with his team as, you know, their guys are preparing their own pregame meal. Mm-hmm. What do you find are kind of the common mistakes? Like you said, cooking with the wrong oil, the fats that can really do detriment and kind of take away the advantages you're looking to gain from your, your pregame meal? Yeah, well, first off, it slows you down. Those bad fats, they slow yeah. you down no matter what. Second, we're forgetting the fact that it's hard to perform at a high level with a tummy ache. It's hard to perform that way. I think the word that best described this is clean food. Clean food. Introducing raw into your diet is critical. Uh, meaning if I'm serving a, a, a quality hot dish to you, um, a side salad with a lot of beautiful vegetables on it, if the athlete takes half of that, 
and, and consumes that with their normal. We're winning. We're doing better than we would have been by way of them going to a restaurant and asking for a double side of ranch. We are, we're mm. winning. We're winning at the end of it. Um, that's first. Second, I think that um, a conscious decision on trying not to purchase food while you're in your car, if you have to roll your window down to pay for your meal, there's a dilemma. Yeah. It's a quite, quite a simple thing. Sounds a little bit on the corny side, but I always used to say that to uh, the, the, the piston guys when they would be, uh, you know, laughing at me and my animated way. I'd say, if you guys roll your windows down and you hand someone some money and they hand you a beverage and a bag, we have a problem. <laughs> Something's going on. I don't know what's in that white cup and that bag has got something in there that's a problem. And you're going to wake up with a stomach ache and you can't blame Chef Loving because I don't know what you ate. And they say, <laughs> well, Chef, how do you know I had it? Because I looked in your garbage can when I was at your house and I don't know where that came from. And uh, it didn't come from me. So, yeah. you know, so, you know, so you got, yeah. you got those kinds of things. So you can't really stop those things, but local teams connecting with nutritionists, connecting with um, operations that have full-fledged quality products. Sometimes it's beautiful gourmet uh, markets that have things connecting with that kitchen manager, connecting with that chef on duty saying, Hey, how can I order a standing order of this quality protein, this type of fish, this type of chicken? Can I get it packaged? Can I have that available? It's reheat friendly. You need that supplemental move in today's times of competitive nature of eating and, and, and athletes. In terms of um, consuming carbohydrates before uh, pregame, what do you recommend? And, you know, I always hear is a potato better than a, a pasta in terms of car uh, carbs? Is there a difference in the type of pasta, the whole wheat or, you know, that is better for consumption? Yeah, I think, um, I think these days right now, the potato for consumption that's very, very strong and popular at this stage is either A, the sweet potato or the Peruvian purple potatoes are very good for you. Um, they sound a little bit different because when you cook them, they're purple, uh, but they don't, they don't taste purple. <laughs> you know, they, they, they don't, they don't taste weird, uh, but that's a quality potato for you. The starch content is different. So it, it, it's the right carb, um, um, but the, mm. the, 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 the sugar index, it, you know, you have to be careful with that, obviously, but that's usually uh, the move that takes place there. I also think that the amount of green vegetables that's on that plate to balance the difference of it is the critical. Um, but very rarely, I haven't seen a basic Idaho or yellow potato used at all for a pregame at all. Okay. Uh, with all the new grains out there now, your quinoas, your your bulgur, um, your sweet potato, your Peruvian potato, you know, then when you get into the pastas, I would say one big rule of thumb, yes, whole wheat, but you have to look at the durum. You got to look at the type of wheat that's on the box, you do. And then from that, okay. if you have the bigger pasta, so if you have a big fettuccine, versus a small pasta, the chances of getting full off the smaller pasta is greater than one big lump of fettuccine Alfredo. Okay. There's a reality there. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, 
let's face it, the college kids, I mean, they love Alfredo. I mean, you know, <laughs> is, is, is that a real human, Alfredo? Uh, I never, I never met him, but you know, he's real out there, man. People like him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How about post game? You know, as one of the things I always find as a, as a coach, you get home late, it's, it's 10 PM, 10 30, 11, maybe you're digging into the film of the game and then, then you're trying to go to sleep and then wake up with some energy. What are some nutritional or tips late at night, potentially late night snacking or eating that would be healthy and and good for the morning? I'm going to say a few things. If at all possible prior to the game or that morning prior to your study being so heavy and aggressive that you just don't want to get away from, you know, studying film and all of that, a prepackaged understanding of of, uh, things like variety of nuts, uh, pickup items that are good, white bean hummus, regular hummus, different types of things that way that are pickup friendly because the majority of the time that I've noticed, uh, and this is just only my noticing, it doesn't mean that I'm right or wrong on this, but when coaches are studying and they're in film and that most of the times that I'm preparing things um, on the back end of a post game for the, for the coaches, cause they're up late at night watching things, tapas, small finger foods is better because you do get full faster by a small portion as you keep snacking on it versus a plate of food because mm-hmm. you're, you're grabbing things and you're studying while you're looking. So you're, you're, you're not really like desiring a fork and a knife and it's, it's, right. it's not the same process. So I think smaller portions, lots of it, variety based, um, and definitely staying away from the deep fryer at that point, based on the late night. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the yep. big, the big DF needs to not be a part of the process at that point. <laughs> I call it the big DF. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm guilty of that from time yeah. to time. Yeah. yeah. You see how your voice got lower right there? Like. <laughs> no. Yeah. That was you know I mean? that was guilt and shame coming yeah. through. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, oh, chef, loving. What are you doing, man? You, you brought the. You're DM speaking out. right to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, what if it's an air fryer? Oh. You know? Is there a difference? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do know there was a few of those in in Orlando. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those work. Those those do work. Those do work, but the problem is is that fat that's at the bottom after you cook those wing dings, that fat at the bottom, you do like rubbing that wing in that a little bit because that tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. It's good. When you're dealing with preparing dishes, maybe with a, a vegan or a vegetarian athlete, what is in the ways you're trying to compensate or what goes into the meal prep if you know that you're not going to be using uh, a, a meat product? I mean, it's, so, it's so strategic. I think that that's really a heavy interview process. If we're talking tofu, tempeh, we have to interview. We have to talk to that athlete. We have to make sure they feel yeah. comfortable. It's obvious that, um, that there's a lot of... Um, you know, products out there, Hungry Planet, um, uh, Beyond. There are some products out there today that gives you such a great lift um, and movement of taking that product and transforming it into a complete meal. I think that that really is a straight up interview, just the same as allergic reactions and things that are do's and don'ts for the person. I think that's a face-to-face figuring out what fuels them and what the team nutritionist says helps them not to have a crash during the game or at halftime. Um, I do think that the need for them to have an additional meal 
um, and a push through is important just because of blood and, and just the flow. But I think that that really is a personalized uh, technique that you ask and deal with each athlete with. I do. In your opinion, for today's athlete, especially a basketball player, do you believe the role of protein consumption is in somewhat overrated or underrated as far as, you know, oh, I got to get my protein. I got to get so much. I think it's overrated. I really no. do personally. I think it's overrated because uh, because of the amount of beverages that are available that are are now being um, supported for the additional protein use. There's so many different things out there being handed from a recovery perspective from the high-end mastered nutritionist that knows exactly the science part of that. That science part of that would not be my area of expertise. But if I have a nutritionist that has that expertise of saying after the game, they're drinking this beverage that has X amount of protein in it, the reality from a food and beverage perspective or a food perspective as being a chef is I believe the word balance, the right products at the right time and the right amounts, because there's something gratifying about giving someone an item that they didn't believe they would like. They had no clue what it is. They eat that item, ask for more, and they don't realize it's not even rice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They don't even they don't even realize what's going on that you intermix another grain in with the item that visually looks like rice and you treated it like stir fry. You know, you incorporate things from a cooking technique perspective that are ingredients that you know that they have to have. Yeah. So just the same as southern cooking. Grew up in the South or you like Southern cooking, you like greens, you like them braised. It's a Southern hospitality. Well, are you going to use all collard greens or are you going to use some kale? Are you going to use some cabbage in with the collards, in with the kale? You know, what can you do to build that home-based flavor that the athlete is used to and intermix it into their diet? That's, that's the goal. But you have to have both. You have to have the nutritionist that's strong yeah. with supporting the need. And then you have to have a culinary person that understands how to build those flavors to where the person says, man, I can't eat that. I don't, I don't like the taste of that. You can't have that. You have a, you have a few yeah. of those. You got a problem. You know, I definitely can't have those on the road when I'm in the middle of Turkey. You know, in the middle of Istanbul, you can't have, chef, I don't like the taste of that. That's a problem. You know, so, you know, that that's a different level and that's how I feel on that, honestly. This has been really great. Um, really enjoying this. We, uh, in, in the more recent podcast we've done, we've had kind of a fun section that we call overrated or underrated. And okay. what we do is we, we give you some just sort of lighthearted um, <laughs> topics and ask you to say if that's overrated or underrated. And then you can briefly, you know, explain why and we'll kind of move through it. I feel like I'm about to take the exam again. Okay. (laughs) You can relax. It's not too bad. This won't be eight days, so you'll be fine. (laughs) My man. (laughs) All All right. (laughs) Overrated or underrated Detroit-style pizza? Underrated, man. I'm from the D. Come on. (laughs) Don't be doing that. (laughs) Come on. I got to protect my city. Come on. I'm not saying it's the best, but yeah, it's underrated. Come on. (laughs) 
good. All right. Um, overrated, underrated chocolate milk as a recovery drink. Um, I'm going to say overrated. I don't okay. know if it has to be a recovery beverage. I think it's like chocolate milk, man. You, you want some chocolate milk. It's not recovery. I mean, you just, you just want some chocolate <laughs> milk and feel like a kid. You ain't recovering from nothing. Come on. The, the, t- the taste is not overrated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's chocolate milk. You know, it's like yeah. mixing the Hershey. It's mixing Hershey and milk. I mean, come on. Everyone did it. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, overrated or underrated? Intermittent fasting. I think it's underrated. I think it's okay. underrated from, from the standpoint of it's a, it's a controlling overindulging, which helps with life in general, right? So why do they do it? It's because, you know, sometimes we can overindulge. So we're retraining our body and our metabolism to not want as much. And then you, you get better at it, I think. So I say underrated because um, I think it is something that can, can help. That's why it's not overrated because it can help. So I, I think okay. it can. All right. Overrated, underrated sugar. Wow. Wow. That's hard. <laughs> that's uh, that's an excellent one. Um, sugar's overrated. Sugar's overrated. There's many ways that you can make things taste good without granulated sugar being sprinkled into the spaghetti sauce. Just put a couple carrots in there and let them swim in there for a while. to get nice and sweet without sprinkling that sugar on it like I was a kid and people wanted their SpaghettiOs with a little bit of sugar. Yeah, it's, it's overrated. But <laughs> okay. it's not overrated with Kool-Aid, but it's overrated <laughs> with, with stuff like that sauce. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. On that, on that same topic, overrated or underrated salt? Underrated. Underrated. I mean, you got to have adoration in there, but salt is so cool. It's like the coolest thing. You can, you can bake a whole piece of fish under salt. You can, salt's awesome. And I understand we have to be careful with it. I get it. But as a chef, I'm staring at you right now. I need salt to cook with. I, I can't make something taste good without salt. I do have to control it, but I need salt. Okay. My last one, Dan, yep. for you, uh, chef, smoothies. I think they're underrated. I think they're underrated because um, it's what you put in them that make them over the top and right. Mm-hmm. A smoothie for an athlete done the right way at a training facility with an expert that's handling it and knows exactly what's going on when you're paying attention to your sports nutritionist and facility. They know exactly what they're putting into those uh, particular smoothies to make that recovery right. But if you go to the corner store and they and you buy a smoothie in the in the middle of the corner store and it's got some tropical looking tree on it and you think you're driving cool with your sunglasses, then no. <laughs> but other than that, I do think that the word smoothie is is a good thing when done right. I do. Any recommendations for the smoothies? What kind of greens you would add that usually pr- produce a good flavor and also nutritional benefit? You know, everybody will say the same thing in terms of greens when people are talking about kale and spinach and, and chicory yeah. and you know all these greens and that. But I think the formula is based on how you're going about it. Is it a cold press? Is it a cold press juicing method that doesn't get heat? And that heat transfer changes the nutritional value. You go into most of the smoothie machines. 
you hear all of that high, high pitch machine motor going to blend it together, but you don't want that to get warm, right? So cold press juicing, um, which is what yeah. question I thought you were going to say, which is, is it overrated <laughs> or underrated, which is juicing. And I was going to say, man, underrated, keep juicing. But you okay. tricked me like with movies, so yeah. I went there. <laughs> Add your own overrated under. I like that. Yeah. yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, last question as we kind of get you out of here on this. Um, and this has been fantastic, by the way. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on. You're we've, welcome. We've had a blast. Um, you've worked all over the world with tons of different people. Um, and you've done so much so far in your career. What is it about what you do as a chef that brings you the most joy and the most meaning? I think what brings me the most joy is whether it's an athlete, whether it's a customer, whether it's an elderly, um, whether it's a child, whether it's a coach, the expression on their face when you do something that made them happy, um, when you see that they're fulfilled, um, when you see a team uh, win a gold medal and have champagne on the airplane. When you see that you were a part of that and you're behind the scenes, but you don't need any credit for that. That's what keeps me fueled, energized, all that. It's just because, you know, being a chef, you, you, those uh, moments that I've had in my life, you, you set aside ego. See, it's a totally different process. There's no ego involved when you're talking about pleasing people in hospitality and cooking and food and that. It's really all about, can you please everybody at the same time, right? And so there's a lot of talented individuals, but sometimes, you know, individuals don't like to be told you don't like it. You know, you, they don't, you don't like the flavor of this and that. But, you know, in the platform I've been around in my in my career and traveling and all that, you get told directly. An athlete will be honest. They will tell you exactly what's really going on. And so when you check that at the door and you see results at the end, man, it's fun. You know, it's so fun to, you know, to see celebrations that way. I've witnessed a lot of them. I've witnessed a lot of celebrations and um Champagne does burn in your eyes. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.